Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this is a live show. (laughs) Uh, So we are presenting this episode as part of the American Anthropological Association's Anthro Day 2022. Um, And so we are thrilled to be here with all of you virtually uh, this evening. Um, And this is what the... Third, third time we've done fourth. this third is more this, than two this is our fourth it's our fourth yes it's our fourth year of the show third year with mm-hmm, anthro day mm-hmm. so we are very excited about Woo. this um so for those of you hearing this on the main feed in the future uh this is the edited version of our live show and if you missed it don't worry we'll be doing more we keep doing this we love doing <laughs> yes this. i love doing this from my office <laughs> uh So our topic this time is maybe the second most frequently occurring topic in Amber and my conversations right behind memes and or pets, and that is food. It's a human constant people got to eat and the food they chose to eat, how they prepared it and the traditions that came out of that are a fascinating peek at how parts of people's lives were experienced. So we as as people examining the archaeological record get to learn to some extent how the past tasted. Also, we're doing some phenomenology. Mm, Delicious. What did the past taste like? Old. Kind of salty. (laughs) This evening, today, we'll be serving up a platter of food-related topics, including a look at really, really old recipes, exploring cookware and trash heaps, celebrating one scholar's food odyssey, uh, not mine, looking at how food may have changed our faces, and more. And we've got one brief Patreon shout out before we start our smorgasbord. And that is Anne. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Anne, for subscribing over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and for supporting the show. Mm-hmm. All righty. So I hope you're all hungry for archaeology because here we go. Um, in putting the script together, we went with topic rather than geography as a framework. So there are definitely places in the world that we've missed. Just as a disclaimer, we'll just have to do more shows on food. <laughs> oh, no. But let's get started and let us start where all beginner cooks should with a recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna, do you have, this is, this is how I start episodes where I'm like, Anna, tell me what you know. <laughs> Anna, do you know any recipes? I do. I, can I tell you my favorite recipe? Yes. Yes. My favorite recipe is the tomato sauce that is, was made popular and, and bears the name of Italian TV cook and general wonderful person, uh, Marcella Hazan. And it involves crushed tomatoes, a lot of butter, Oh, you're telling me the recipe. And an onion. Well, that's it. That's That's it. it? Yeah. So this is the thing. It's this kind of magical alchemy because you you cut up the onion into quarters, you stick it in with the tomatoes and the butter, and you bring it to a simmer. And in within 45 minutes, something magical happens and it is just glorious. So highly recommend. How about you? 
I think my favorite recipe is one of my own because uh-huh. I thought that that's what the question was. I am known as something of a uh, pro at making mac and cheese. So I make a very specific mac and cheese that is known um, in my circles as birthday mac. So birthday mac and cheese. Birthday mac. Yes. I have a birthday Um, coming up. Ah, well. Please don't mail me any mac and cheese. That's what what you're getting. Your Christmas present, all the books that I bought and forgot to ship to you and some mac and cheese. So that's what we'll do. So yeah, those are... Those are some recipes and let's uh, find those recipes and put them in the show notes for folks. Great. Till it'll be. Will do. Mm. But that's not why we're here. We did not, we did not, not con. This isn't that podcast. We did not con dozens of people to join <laughs> us so that we could talk about our favorite recipes. We are here to talk about archaeology. Mm. So what were people doing in prehistory vis-a-vis recipes? Let's talk about some early examples of recipes decoded by researchers. Um, In some cases, that will be through analysis of archaeological materials. um, And in some cases, it's just reading recipes and being like, what's happening here? Um, So we'll start with the former. Because recipes can be very unspecific. Just sort of like broth was used. (laughs) Yes. Um, So let's start with the former. And um, head back 6,000 years ago to what is today, Ooh. Germany and Denmark. That was the noise of us heading back there. Oh, okay. Uh, researchers from the University of York have looked at residues from ceramics found in bogs, uh, which you know, bogs is, is where you, you go to a bog if you want to find some well-preserved organic material. Or a person, like, like I'm always saying. They found some, some residues from these that were unusually well-preserved for organic remains, not not just bogs. But we've talked about this before uh, with stuff like butter, bog butter, like a billion years ago when we started the episode. Episode three. Show. Not the episode. <laughs> episode three, yeah. And they also preserve stuff like people. Mm. Um, and so sherds, pot sherds dating back to around 6,000 years, contain phytoliths or silica plant remains, which we've also talked about, of the garlic mustard plant. So garlic mustard is in the same family as broccoli and kale. So it's actually an invasive weed here in the United States. Everywhere. It is. Uh, But it's indigenous to Europe. And in prehistory, it probably was pretty ubiquitous. So its leaves are peppery, a bit like arugula or rocket, depending on where you are. (laughs) And the tiny black seeds have a punchy horseradishy flavor. And so the seeds were found in the ceramics. And since they're so tiny, they've got almost no nutritional value. The researchers concluded they must have been added for flavor. And also there were too many of them to have sort of got in there by accident. It's not like the wind blew a tablespoon of these seeds. Okay. Meanwhile, around 4,000 years ago in what is today China at the site of Lajia, Along the Yellow River, archaeologists found a pot containing the remains of the oldest known noodles. Unfortunately for the inhabitants of Lajia, the pot still contained noodles because the ancient settlement was hit by a catastrophic earthquake and subsequent flash flood that buried the site in river mud. That sentence really, really took a twist. Um, yep. So that sudden and complete burial is what preserved the noodles for so long. This, these were not bog noodles. No. Uh, 
And it allowed researchers to determine that the dough had been made from local grains like millet. So this shows that noodles were being made in China well before the introduction of wheat from Europe. Mm -hmm. And so lastly, for this segment of us figuring out what people were eating um, without them telling us, uh, the earliest collection of writings that could reasonably be called a cookbook is generally agreed to be De Re Coquinaria, so on the subject of cooking by the Roman writer Apicius, which is where we get the word epicure or epicurean from. So the book is thought to have been compiled during the first century CE and is cited by Pliny the Elder. So here are the titles of the first four chapters. Because they made me giggle. Yeah. And they are names that I wish to use at people in my life. Uh, So first we've got Epimeles, the careful housekeeper. Sarcoptes, the meat mincer. (laughs) Uh, Ground beef. Caperos, the gardener for vegetables. And pandectare, many ingredients. Many ingredients. Many ingredients. That's, that's, my, that's my chapter right there. Mm-hmm. But there are older examples of written recipes. And those are the cuneiform tablets that are currently part of Yale's Babylonian collection. And so these specific tablets date to between 1730 and 1000 BCE and Old. come from... Yeah, yes. <laughs> and come, yes. Uh, and come from what is today the regions of Iraq, south of Baghdad, as well as north of Baghdad. So, including parts of Syria and Turkey. So, I'm going to read from ex- uh, some excerpts of a BBC travel article by Ashley Winchester here discussing these. And Winchester writes, quote, The four dishes called from the list-style tablet also each have unique uses. Pashrutum, for example, is a soup one might serve someone suffering from a cold. Though the meaning of this bland broth, accented by leek, coriander, and onion flavors, translates as unwinding. You know, (laughs) when you need to relax, unwind, broth. I think that that might have something more to do with the effect on your sinuses. Oh, hmm. All righty. So Elamite broth, so mu elamutum, on the other hand, is among two foreign or Zukanda dishes listed in the tablets. So we'll talk a little bit more about why that particular recipe is recognizable as foreign in a little bit. But one dish resembles a chicken pot pie with layers of dough and chunks of bird smothered by a sort of Babylonian bechamel sauce. Mm. So its presentation also contains an element of surprise. <laughs> <laughs> the most dangerous seasoning. Um, so the bird dish was served covered by a crusty lid. I don't I don't care for that. It's a lid of crust. Yeah, I, I know. I understand that. I don't know why you said crusty lid because uh, which which diners then opened to reveal the meat inside so it's it's um it's a pot pie bird on crude um so there's a lamb stew which is mei puhari which is meant to be eaten with barley cakes crumbled into the liquid um as one might do today with bread to sop up a soup mm. also there is very specifically a a dish that is um that uh, I was looking up the other night and I was like, what do I do with my leftovers? And so it's a, it's a stew mm-hmm. that it's like a lamb stew that you break up 
stale bread into. Mm. And that is something that you eat um, that's eaten in um, the wider Gulf region, including what is today Iraq. Well, hey. Uh, so, hey, hey, look at that. I mean, it's also like a, it makes sense. This can be like a convergent evolution thing too. I'm not saying there is stew continuity. Continuity. Uh, continuity, yes. Um, so, the so so these these folks that like kind of messing around the the Yale Babylonian collection <laughs> they were trying to um, they were they were trying to sort of what is it reverse engineer these mm-hmm. these recipes yeah because it wasn't and, these these dishes weren't recorded with quantities or really no. directions so, it's sort of like lamb is used. Then yeah. there are herbs. Yeah. So it's so you just say what is present mm-hmm. in the in the dish. So it's more of a shopping list than a recipe. Mm. But, mm-hmm. um, so they they eventually figured out how to make this and like make it good. Uh, that's the other thing that's difficult to do. Um, taste okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually I had this happened. Um, I had a class where we did that where we yum. Um, this was specifically with uh, Roman cuisine. Mm. Like, mm-hmm like Republican period Roman cuisine. Um, And it was not my type. All right. Uh, But, but yeah. So um, if you are hungry now, Mm. not you, Anna, I know you are Um, listeners. If you're curious about these dishes and want to try them yourselves, we'll include a link to this piece in the show notes. And there actually are recipes. So the, the recipes that these, that this group of interdisciplinary scholars kind of, teased out so you can you can try that and you can make it and, and if you like, do put it on yeah. social media and tag us because we want to yeah. see or call me or that yeah. and now we come to the spicy part of the episode but don't worry this is still a family program although the accompanying dirt after dark for this month which i need to write is going to <laughs> also be about spice and will most likely be a bit more for the grown-up crowd will so this be about how we, people ate people with spice man corn spicy people maybe spicy people spicy people uh so but in that one i will be taking amber through the evolution of plants that produce capsaicin oh. why hot pepper spice feels the way it does and why humans seem to like that but that's not for today there is more than one kind of spice and the Go one that on. i i shall and the one that i want to talk about today is most closely associated with the history and cuisine of sichuan province in china so i want to talk about sichuan peppercorns and mala so the physical sensation that the sichuan peppercorn creates isn't anything like what capsaicin does um and actually the peppercorn the sichuan peppercorn is mm-hmm. in no way, I mean, apart from being a plant, uh, isn't related to hot peppers or, for that matter, the black, green, or white peppercorns that you get in the in the fancy grinders. Did you know that the black, green, and white peppercorns are all from the same plant? Did you know that? Yes. Mm. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Not wild that you knew that. Wild that it's like this industry that's of fine. like, oh, they're different. They're just, I'm always just surprised pepper. when I know something, so it's fine. Ah, oh, what a pleasant surprise. So when you eat chilies, so capsaicin, uh-huh containing chilies when one eats them yeah i don't know uh when you accidentally bite down on a chili (laughs) capsaicin creates the burning mouth feeling known in chinese as la sichuan peppercorns produce a a phenomenon called paresthesia so the lips and tongue can feel like they're vibrating or kind of buzzing almost and they feel numb and that's known as ma 
So, oh, uh, that's yes. also known as my tree nut allergy. <laughs> Amber, don't eat that. Together, the burning and numbing from these two ingredients is called Amber goes to ER. Uh, no, is is known in Chinese as mala, and it's a hallmark of Sichuan cuisine that facilitates sweating, thus creating a cooling effect that makes the sweltering climate of that region huh. more tolerable. I mean, it's wow. not the only reason that oh, yeah, no, it's popular that. in it, but it it helps. That's a lot of okay. a lot of the reason why spicy food seems to be popular in hot, humid climes. Um, has to do with the sweating and the cooling. Okay. Yeah. I've never thought about that. <laughs> Mostly Again, because I'm not eating the spicy like, peppers. My, my thoughts are elsewhere. Ooh, bell moments. pepper. Ooh, too spicy. I'll stop. <laughs> it's okay. I bit into a jalapeno like two weeks ago and cried. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the botanical name for the Sichuan peppercorn is Xanthoxylum piperitum. And the plant itself is a deciduous spiny shrub that is also called Japanese prickly ash. It's indigenous to Japan and Korea and is more closely related to citrus plants than it is to either capsicum peppers or the peppercorn plant. So these days, Sichuan cuisine does have a reputation for being pretty fiery. But was that always the case? I'm going to answer that right away. No, because capsaicin peppers are indigenous to the Americas and didn't make their way to China for a while. But in the 4th century CE, Chronicles of Huayang, which, remember those? We mentioned them in our Sanqingdui episode. So in those 4th century CE Chronicles, Sichuan cuisine is characterized as favoring strong flavors. But that doesn't necessarily mean spicy, because like I'd call blue cheese or fermented fish or, you know, sauerkraut or whatever, strong flavors, but those aren't heavily spiced. But it could refer to the use of the local peppercorn, which produces that tingling, numbing, prickly, or sometimes cooling sensation in the mouth. And if that's what the Chronicles of Huayang were referring to, then Sichuan peppercorns may have been in use in that region for more than a thousand years. So that is the the tingling but how about mm-hmm. the spicy mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i am quoting here from the university of illinois world history connected online journal all right quote both overland and sea routes might be possible for the entering of hot peppers into china shortly after Colombian contact first it is reasonable to speculate that this foreign plant was first brought to western china through overland routes during the late 16th century One possible route was through the famous Silk Road, traveled primarily by merchants from the Arabian world, where the local people might have learned of hot peppers from Europe. Sea routes may also serve as a possible transmission route for hot peppers. I said route and route in the same sentence, huh? Mm. Language is amazing. Uh, A possible transmission route for hot peppers destined for inland China. Given the long history of maritime commerce between China's southern coast and Southeast Asia, this plant could have entered China through trades with merchants from India or Spanish Philippines in the 16th century. Today's Sichuanese still call hot peppers haijiao or sea peppers, which suggests the potential possibility of a maritime transmission route. End quote. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Not us. So before we cool off from this segment, I also want to share an aspect of Sichuan cuisine and a a social aspect of spice that I knew nothing about. So I've pulled some excerpts here from a piece on Nautilus. Yeah. I love Nautilus. Yeah. And I I specifically chose this because I thought it would please you, Amber. So this piece is by Andrew Leonard from 2016. And so 
a quote, to explain the prominence of spicy food in Sichuan, food historians have pointed to the province's hot and humid climate, the principles of Chinese medicine, the constraints of geography, and the exigencies of economics. Most recently, neuropsychologists have uncovered a link between the chili pepper and risk-taking. The research is provocative because the Sichuan people have long been notorious for their rebellious spirit. Some of the momentous events in modern Chinese political history can be traced back to Sichuan's hot temper. In 1932, the Soviet Union sent one of its best agents to China, a former school teacher and counter-espionage expert from Germany named Otto Braun. His mission was to serve as a military advisor to the Chinese communists who were engaged in a desperate battle for survival against Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. In Braun's autobiography, he describes his impressions of Mao Zedong. And Braun wrote, The shrewd peasant organizer, meaning Mao, had a mean or even spiteful streak. For example, for a long time, I could not accustom myself to the strongly spiced food, such as hot fried peppers, which is traditional to southern China, especially in Hunan, Mao's birthplace. So uh, the Soviet agent's tender taste buds invited Mao's mockery. And he said, Mao said, the food of the true revolutionary is the red pepper. And he who cannot endure red peppers is also unable to fight. So end Mao's quote. Another indicator of how deeply spice is rooted in this culture is the vigorous rhetorical competition between the Hunanese and the Sichuanese on the question of which province is less afraid of the hot pepper. Both provinces, the core of China's chili belt, exalt the stereotype of the spicy girl, La Mezi who is at least as irascible as the chili is hot. Spice Girls. Okay, so I did like that. You're right. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Um, now, let us bring you an assortment of interesting tidbits. Um, so, stop us. Okay, like, stop us. Um, so first, a question. How did we cook before pots? <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a stretch of the imagination to suppose that once our ancestors knew how to control fire, at some point they cooked some of their food with it. Yep. No notes. Really? <laughs> so roasting meat or tubers in the coals of a campfire on a spit is one thing. But what about something like a stew? Arguably... This is the most nutrient efficient way to cook your meat. All of the fat doesn't drip and burn off as it does during roasting. Instead, the fats and collagen from any bones enrich the broth. And it's a low investment meal in terms of time and attention. You can have a soup simmering all day long and it's delicious by dinner time. So, you know, your little crock pot. Mm -hmm. So were there ways to cook liquid things before there were ceramics? The answer is Anna, maybe. Oh, probably. We don't know for sure. Are you surprised? I bet you're not (laughs) that we don't know. So, okay. (laughs) So I'm going to um, excerpt, but also summarize a description of some experimental archaeology. And this is taken from an article by Sarah Zhang in The Atlantic. Um, But there's also an excellent article by John Speth from 2015 called When Did Humans Learn to Boil? Um, and so we'll have those in the show notes for your perusing pleasure. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a summary, there were students at the York Experimental Archaeological Research Center. So York, York. Uh, who set up multiple experiments based on the ways researchers think Paleolithic people could have heated liquids. So 
We've got pits with coals at the bottom lined with wet hide. So like more of like a like steaming or a clam bake I see here. I don't know. I'm from New England. I'm so, yeah. <laughs> you dig a pit in the beach and then you, there's steam. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. so some, okay, great. All right. You got a wet pit. Uh, so, so, so more like a, um, like a, like a foil pouch. Yeah. Like a little, sure. A little campfire pouch. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, like with camping. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, Suspended pig stomachs or birch bark containers filled with liquid over a fire. So the liquid um, and sort of having it saturated keeps that container from burning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so and then there's also hot rocks dropped into water in a suspended deer hide pot. Um, So this is based on evidence of fire cracked rocks from Paleolithic sites. Um, So it's thought that these these. So fire cracked rocks are exactly that. They are rocks that have cracks in them that were um, caused by heat stress that were. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you get it hot enough and it just sort of cracks. It doesn't shatter completely, but it sometimes it can sometimes. Yeah. It depends on. It's not great. Was there fire shattered rocks? Okay. Um, sometimes if the rocks themselves are wet or if they have water in them or they already have cracks, they can fracture at high temps. So that's, that's what, that's what this is. So they thought like, oh, okay. So these were probably deliberately heated. Mm-hmm. Repeatedly um, opposed, and then dropped into yeah. water to heat that water. As opposed to a rock that just like, you know, you, you may have rocks that are present um, where there's been like a forest fire or mm-hmm. something. And then you'd have, you'd have other archeological signatures, but these looks like they got those rocks hot and then they put them in, put them in something. Yeah. yeah. So here's the quote. I'm quoting. The students hoisted their water-filled deer hide directly over a fire, and they planned to let it go as long as the hide stayed intact. The hair on the outside singed, but the skin itself held up just fine. So the students waited and waited and waited. Four hours later, the hide was still intact. It did get very hard, but neither sprung a leak nor burned. The water reached 60 degrees Celsius or 140 degrees Fahrenheit, but it didn't come to a boil. And the deer hide definitely added some extra flavor, if you will, to the water. Uh, So Christopher Lance, one of the students, was quoted saying, if you stuck your head over it while it was cooking, you could smell it. (laughs) Thank you, Christopher. (laughs) Um, and, And so... The the quote concludes with, they were, I was disappointed to learn, not allowed to drink the hide boiled water for food safety reasons, which is really like something that like keeps coming up where like Anna occasionally will talk about doing experimental archaeology with food. And I'm like, can I eat that? And it's like, probably not. Probably not. I mean, I'm willing to. So just so I want it on the record. I am willing to eat Anna's experiments. Well, there's kitchen experiments and then there's archaeological kitchen experiments and I am on board for both of them. Alrighty. So now we move on to the notable heaps portion <laughs> of the evening, where we tell you about interesting piles of really old stuff that has to do with food. So first up is Monte Testaccio. Feels oh. good to say. Which is a 150 foot tall mountain of discarded Roman amphoras, the shipping drums of the ancient world. The ancient Romans depended on olive oil for a lot of things. They used it for cooking, cleaning, lamp fuel, and more. And for more than 250 years, from at least the first century CE, amphorae filled with olive oil came by ship from the Roman provinces into the city, where they were unloaded, emptied, and then taken to Monte Testaccio and thrown away. 
So that site is also known as Monte dei Cocci, which literally means Mount of Shards. Ah, very, very metal. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. And so that's, (laughs) that's where I lived in the field. I should have. Mount of Shards. Yeah. (laughs) So the Mountain of Jars is located right next to the ancient Tiber River port and the Horea Galbi warehouses, which would have been used to store imported goods. And so as many as 80 million pots, 80 million pots make up that hill which today stands 115 feet high with another 45 feet under the modern street level. So this is very cool for lots of reasons, um, but especially because it's a unique window into Roman trade networks, thanks to a lot of the amphorae having inscriptions that are basically shipping invoices. So saying like this was bottled at boop and sent by order of so-and-so to Rome. Next, it's Mount of something else, Oyster Middens. A midden, as we've said before on the show, is a trash heap, typically one involving food waste. And it comes from um, the Danish word. Yes. A Danish word for muck heap, trash heap. And so the first middens. Oh, God, I have to pull it out of my brain. Okay, so the first time that a midden was described as an archaeological feature was uh, by a Danish guy in Denmark of Danish middens. Thank you. You're welcome. Digging through the oh, the real the heap. that is my my brain. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that was etymology. I'm not calling your brain a trash oh. heap. That's oh, rude. No. It's fine. <laughs> In many places around the world, oyster shell middens provide clues about how people exploited coastal marine resources, often during trips to seasonal hunting grounds. But these giant shell piles are no longer as abundant on the landscape as they were. At, for example, Amber, in your neck of the woods right now, the Emery, right now. the Emeryville shell mound, which is no longer there. And instead, there's an Ikea. I mean, there's still there's some there's still there's still one um, next to the parking lot of the Ikea mm-hmm. and little kids run up. But yep. Mm. Mm. Love, so this, love being in the Bay Area. So this comes from Atlas Obscura. Quote. New York journalist Daniel Treadwell wrote in 1839 that the middens were plentiful and bleached white as snow, a beautiful memory from his childhood. These piles were a legacy from when the Hudson was once a rich oyster bed, full of succulent bivalves for the ancient peoples of New York and New Jersey coasts. The middens helped inform the names of early New York streets. The intersection of Canal Street and Bowery was once called Shell Point, but in Dutch. I don't know what that (laughs) is in Dutch. Shell Point. No, no. <laughs> Pearl Street in Manhattan was named after a midden and later paved with oyster shells. End quote. After surviving for thousands of years, most middens did not escape the last three centuries unscathed. Wah, wah. For European colonizers, these were resources for the taking. Shells were easily dried and burned into lime for cement for buildings used in the 1600s. Um, I think um, I think I learned. Oh, here we go again. Um, I think I learned this week that um, oyster shells are one of the uh, for, were for a very long time one of the uh, primary ingredients in cement in the uh, Gulf Coast region of of Texas. And so that's a big part of um, historic architecture. Mm, mm -hmm. Thank you. They are a common aggregate for making concrete, not the cement. Thank you, friend of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, listen. Kind of. The calcium rich (laughs) shells were also good for adding to farm soil. 
Throughout the colonial era and through the 1800s, this sort of damage to the shell heaps increased. Today, it's illegal to disturb an oyster midden without express permission, making them some of the most valuable and well-respected trash piles around. And finally, this isn't really pertinent except that it's also a midden, but everyone deserves to know that there is now a much diminished oyster shell heap in Maine called Glidden Midden. Come on. Hmm. It's actually extremely important as a record of the lives of the Wabanaki indigenous people from that area and is threatened by coastal erosion. But Glidden Midden. Glidden Midden. So we're going to take a quick ad break and then we'll be back with more. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And we're back. We did it. Um, And remember earlier in this time together, we promised to tell you what that Elamite broth uh, mentioned in the Yale cuneiform tablets was 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 doing and why it was recognizable as something foreign. Here we go. I'm going to tell you. I'm trying to make sure that you can hear my scare quotes around foreign. Goiko Baramovich, um, an Assyriologist at Harvard, um, says about this Elamite broth dish, quote, there's a notion of cuisine in these 4,000-year-old texts. There is food which is ours and food that is foreign. Foreign is not bad. It's only different and sometimes apparently worth cooking since they gave us the recipe. Great point, Goiko. Um, So that Elamite broth contains dill. Um, And so dill is an ingredient that doesn't otherwise show up in the Yale tablets. Presumably, if dill were a common ingredient, it would be mentioned in other recipes. But that's not the case. Also, if it were so common, they wouldn't mention it at all. There there are plenty of recipes that don't list like black pepper or salt Mm -hmm. as ingredients. It's It's just just like salt and pepper to taste. So, yeah. So this would be dill to taste if it were ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't. It is very deliberately Um, mentioned. Deliberately. uh, So that's something that um, is is still, it's still not common um, in that part of the world. So Iraqi cuisine doesn't use much dill, but dill is used quite extensively in Persian food. And and so the food in, in what's today Iran and also uh, points east, yeah. eastward of Iran. Yeah. Babylonians might have thought of dill the way we might 
here in the U.S. think of cilantro and associate it with uh, like Latin food. And yeah. so sort of like Latin American or South American food, that that's something that is more cilantro-y. It's within but, that flavor profile. But also like like cilantro, dill is something that is, in this case, is something that you associate as not you. Um, and there are lots of there are, there are lots of us's out there who have lots of thems. And so um, some of them, the different <laughs> ones have dill. And a, a recent example of this is um, Matt Iglesias. You know Matt Iglesias, Anna? Matt Iglesias? I don't know that I do. Uh, he's a He's got a blog. He's okay. a blogger. Okay. Uh, he's also a political guy. Okay. He's got political thoughts. Loves going to war. Stuff like that. Oh. Um, so Matt Iglesias recently tweeted about dill. Um, and he said for years now, the Russians have been spreading targeted disinformation, attempting to convince the world that dill tastes good. So somebody replied to this and the reply got dunked on where they were like, wow, "Wow, like, I think this might be the, this might be the thing that makes me unfollow. And everyone was like this. (laughs) Cause like, like final dill. Duder has plenty of stuff to say. That's like, like racist and very warmongery. And like, he's just like, He's got a lot of takes. He's got a lot of takes. Love a guy with this takes the one. on Twitter. <laughs> so yeah, dill. Dill. It, dill's been foreign forever. Turns out. I'm saying. Now that we're talking about herbs a ton, do you want an herbal mystery? Please. <laughs> I would love an, uh, possibly a herbal <laughs> mystery. mystery. Yeah. So herbal mysteries. It's my favorite celestial seasonings tea. <laughs> so, so this is The Dirt Presents, The Case of the Lost Laser. It's going to make sense in a minute. Okay, great. I'm just reading what you wrote. Okay, so Silphium. Silphium was a plant adored by the ancient Romans. Oh, gosh, it sounds cute. It had chunky roots, short leaves, crunchy stalks, and clusters of small yellow flowers. Was this written by the Silphium Council? <laughs> the Romans loved this stuff. Loved so it. they stewed the stalks, ate the fresh roots with vinegar, fed it to their sheep. And the sheep loved it. And then the sheep were extra delicious and the Romans loved it. And they dried the sap to grate over dishes like we do with Parmesan cheese or black pepper or truffles. That sappy condiment was known as laser. Probably lazer. 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 Yeah. Um, And was a mainstay of Roman cuisine. There were medicinal and aphrodisiac uses as well. Silphium may have been an effective birth control. Mm-hmm. And its heart-shaped seeds are supposedly one of the reasons we associate a heart shape with love. Silphium grew rapidly in popularity due to its delicious and contraceptive properties. <laughs> I don't know which one was more responsible. <laughs> Two great qualities to have. Um, and it made the town, the small town of Cyrene, which is now in Libya, one of the biggest economic powers at the time. So it's like a Silphium juggernaut. Yeah. The plant contributed to their economy so much that its image was even found printed on Cyrenian currency. Um, And there were also coins depicting that little heart shape. And Anna put one here for me to look at. Yeah. It's just a little little heart on the, well, we'll put it on social media. I mean, it does. Okay. I guess it's a heart, but it looks like like the little, like, it looks like the peach butt emoji. It's a butt. But that also looks like a heart. It works. Like it works. It's just, yep. So tell me more about the mystery. Just leave that there. Just leave, leave that it there. on. Just leave that butt hanging. Silphium also shows up in poems and songs from the Roman era, but it seems to have been harvested to extinction by the first century CE. So what was it? Believe it or not, and you'll 
probably believe it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The identity of Silphium is hotly debated by researchers who care a lot about this sort of thing. Yep. And I love that for them. Love that for them. Aristotle's successor, Theophrastus, wrote a description circa 3rd century BCE that included thick roots covered in black bark, about 48 centimeters long, or one cubit, with a hollow stalk similar to fennel and golden leaves like celery. So we might never know. Yeah. And now, hmm. a segue. <laughs> That's what I wrote. So, uh, so we've talked about dill. So let's talk about dill mun onions. Talk about dill mun onions. What's the deal with dill mun onions? Okay. God, Anna, you're nothing. <laughs> you're this is, welcome. This is, this, is, this is garbage. Gold. Okay. So I've talked about dill mun onions before. Love talking about dill mun onions. Love them. Mm. So we cannot talk about food in the past without mentioning our favorite ancient alliums. So dill mun is, is, is Eastern Arabia. So it is... It's it's Bahrain and it's the islands in the Gulf off the coast of um, Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Um, and so it was described in the Sumerian saga of Enki and Ninhursag as pre-existing in a paradise state. It's paradise. It's paradise um, where, um, according to the saga, the the poem, quote, where predators do not kill, pain and diseases are absent and people do not get old. Dillman's extremely cool in that it is both a mythical place. It was a physical place and it was also um, it existed as a kind of economic entity. Also, we've got Sum Dillman. Uh, we don't actually know what it is uh, because we're just kind of going with it. So there's also a Dillman date um, that refers to a variety of date palm. Um, and and not to dates that came from Dillman. If you're looking for some stuff, you go to Brussels for your sprouts, you go to Sirene for your Silphium, you go to Elam for your dill, and maybe you go somewhere else for your onions. Because we don't know. I don't know. Because we don't know. But let's take one more quick break, and then we will come back to the table. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're back, and it's time. To face some facts about food. No, wait. No, No, it's time for some face food facts. Our teeth and jaws, and to some extent our whole faces, have been shaped by what we eat. At the beginning of the human lineage, our front teeth, the incisors and canines, were pretty close to the size they are now, but the cheek teeth, the premolars and molars, were a bit chalkier, likely because of the primarily plant-based nature of the diet. So you need those bigger molars to grind down your food. 
But in the two million years between then and now, there have been some changes. Some anthropologists credit the introduction of cooked food with the gradual change in our teeth. But here's the thing. There's evidence that Neanderthals ate cooked grains, which suggests that maybe they also cooked other parts of their diet and their molars were still pretty chunky. So would Neanderthal faces have changed if they'd stuck around and kept cooking their food? Hard to say. I'm sorry. Can you pause? Um, I sure can. Cooked grains. Yes. Are eating like quinoa? No, because that is indigenous to the Americas. Uh, I don't know exactly what they were eating, but it was cooked sort of, uh, you know, like grass seeds and things like these. It's not like they had oats or, you know, any anything domesticated, but they would have gathered some kind of seed from a grass or something. Okay. And and it appears that they cooked it. So this is from evidence in dental calculus. So that's uh, what okay. calcified plaque or uh, mineralized plaque. How do we know it was cooked? Uh the mo- it undergoes a structural change. So it's the starch molecules undergo structural change when they're cooked that is visible under a microscope. So we're going to play a quick round of translate that science. This comes from the abstract of a 2015 article in PLOS One, where a research team looked at the chompers of 292 individuals across 21 archaeological populations from around the time of the transition to agriculture, which, again, as we said before, not an exact date. It was a process. But they measured lower jaws and tooth crown dimensions of 292 archaeological skeletons from the Levant, Anatolia, and Europe from between 28,000 to 6,000 years ago. So here is a little chunk of the abstract. A quote. Results show a clear separation based on mandibular morphology between European hunter-gatherers, European farmers, and Near Eastern transitional farmers and semi-sedentary hunter-gatherers. In contrast, the dental dimensions show no such pattern and no clear association between the position of samples and their temporal or geographic attributes. Although later farming groups have, on average, smaller teeth and mandibles, shape analyses show that the mandibles of farmers are not simply size-reduced versions of earlier hunter-gatherer mandibles. Instead, it appears that mandibular form underwent a complex series of shape changes commensurate with the trend transition to agriculture that are not reflected in affinity patterns based on dental dimensions. <sighs> okay, so beep boop, translate. It's not really that our tooth size changed because of agriculture. So instead, what seems to have happened is, ba- based on at least these populations, the musculature of the jaw that we rely on to chew changed because people were eating a lot of softer cooked grains and other foods associated with farming and domesticated crops, and they weren't using their jaw muscles in the same way. And because those muscles changed, the actual overall bone structure of the jaw changed too. And this is on very small levels. Like they kind of went in and uh, with calipers and measured the distance between various set landmarks on each mandible wow. and, and each tooth. So it's like really um, complex. It's, it's called geometric morphometrics. It's sort of like computer-based modeling and mapping of of structures in order to measure differences between landmarks and to measure changes like this. Okay. So, so, okay. So it's not, um, so it isn't like if, if we had a, uh, transitional farmer who joined us today and like looked at us and would be like, look at these these jaw they like might. they would like what it like is it is it noticeable? I, do, I don't think it would be super noticeable no it okay. is noticeable it to is. someone with calipers and 
a spreadsheet. Yeah. Well, you don't want to attract the attention of people with calipers. Can get you. You pinch. Uh, so the researchers from from this plus one article and other articles that I that I browsed suggest that agriculture <laughs> has been partially responsible for our jaw shortening and our teeth getting a bit more crowded in our mouths. So that would have been one thing that that might have Is been that my problem. <laughs> Yeah, you're too agricultural. Um, but that's not all. Oh, the utensils more. that we use to eat have changed our mouths too. So yeah. this is this is from an interview in the Atlantic with B. Wilson, who's the author of Consider the Fork, which is a great book. Um, so before before I read this quote, Amber, I want you to just like close your teeth and <laughs> close your teeth. No, I just be aware of, and everyone, everyone listening, everyone here at the show, be aware of Amber's teeth, be aware of your own teeth and Amber's okay. teeth. Everybody look at Amber's teeth. Um, oh. And so there's, there's something called occlusion, which is how the teeth come together. And yes. if they occlude directly, then your teeth would come down. The top teeth would come down directly on the bottom teeth, mm-hmm. but they don't, they don't, they don't. You're and and you as I, as most people do have an overbite, which is not to say that like, it's a bad thing. It's just like, thank you for validating me. Yeah. Yeah. It's just your front teeth close over your bottom teeth. It's true. Yeah. And so in this interview from the Atlantic, B. Wilson says, quote, until around 250 years ago in the West, archaeological evidence suggests that most human beings had an edge to edge bite similar to apes. In other words, our teeth were aligned like a guillotine with the top layer clashing against the bottom layer, which like thinking about that I, makes my teeth hurt. I don't then quite suddenly this alignment of the jaw changed we developed an overbite which is still normal today the top layer of teeth fits over the bottom layer like a lid on a box mouth box mouth box what changed 250 years ago was the adoption of the knife and fork which meant that we were cutting chewy food into small morsels before eating it previously when eating something chewy such as meat crusty bread or hard cheese it would have been clamped between the jaws and then sliced with a knife or ripped by hand so like the medieval way of eating, which is just like chomp and then you take your knife and you slice it off at your mouth. So the clincher, because you might say like, well, this is it's there's evidence of of this. Oh, happening I thought you were saying Europe. the clincher was like a is a utensil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're having brisket. Let me get my clincher. I don't know why brisket was the choice I made. No, the the thing that supports <sighs> this argument. Is, okay. is that the same change, same dental change, is seen 900 years earlier in China when people started using chopsticks. So smaller, less chewy bites of food mm-hmm. changed our faces, ah. forked our faces all up. All right. So um, let's wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> to polish off this episode, we want to celebrate a hero of food and history scholarship. Food, history of food? Yes. And both. Okay. Lynn Ulver. Mm -hmm. So Ulver was a reference librarian in the Morris County Library in New Jersey, who passed away in 2015, but her work lives on in the food timeline. Um, So I'm going to be. Which we will link to in the show notes. It's wonderful. I'm going to be reading from a write up on eater.com. Eater. Hardly know her. By Dana Evans. (laughs) Quote. 
The food timeline happens to be the single most comprehensive inventory of food knowledge on the internet, with thousands upon thousands of pages of primary sources, cross-checked research, and obsessively detailed food history presented in chronological order. Every entry on the food timeline, which begins with water in pre-17,000 BC and ends with test tube burgers in 2013, is sourced from, quote, old cookbooks, newspapers, magazines, national historic parks, government agencies, university, cultural organizations, culinary historians, and company slash restaurant websites. End quote. There is history, context, and commentary on everything from Taylor pork roll to Scottish tablet. No idea what to, Scottish tablet is. I don't know. Let's find out. To cowboy cooking. They also have pepperoni rolls. They're the official food of West Virginia, my home. Uh, and I will read this to you. Created by Giuseppe Agiro in 1927 for coal miners in Fairmont, West Virginia, the pepperoni roll is an instance of immigrant influence on the food of Appalachia. The food, the roll consists of white yeast leavened bread with pepperoni in the middle. When baked, the fats in the pepperoni melt into the bread and give it a spicy taste. As these rolls do not meet, need to be refrigerated after cooking, they were an ideal lunch option for miners. It resembled the British sausage yeah. roll and the Italian calzone. The family of Giuseppe Giro still makes the pepperoni rolls at the Country Club Bakery. They're not the best though okay they're fine take it up with Giuseppe the best. from the same article quote Ulver launched the site in 1999 two years before Wikipedia debuted and maintained it with little additional help for more than 15 years by 2014 it had reached 35 million readers and Ulver had personally answered 25,000 questions from fans who were writing history papers or wondering about the origins of family recipes Overpopulated the pages with well-researched answers to these questions, making a research so thorough that a full scroll to the bottom of the food timeline takes several labored seconds. End quote. <laughs> what a great metric. Mm -hmm. So when Olver passed away in 2015 after a brief battle with leukemia, her family was unsure what to do to maintain the website. The domain was set to expire, and the Ulver family put out feelers to see if there were any institutions who might want to manage this massive resource. They got a ton of responses, but one really stood out. The Special Collections and University Archives Department at Virginia Tech University. And so Eater.com, who put out the, that original article, also did a follow-up, uh, which I'm going to quote from now. Quote, okay. Lynn had no specific connection to Virginia Tech, but of all the suitors, the staff at VT were the most committed to maintaining the food timeline's mission. Kira Dietz, the assistant director of special collections and university archives at Virginia Tech, wrote that their proposal for the project would be interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary. There we go. That's how you say that, like a human. Um, hey, remember that time that we tried to read it as, a, as an adverb? Interdisciplinarily? No, that was peculiarly. peculiarly. Yeah, sorry. Okay, sorry. Peculiar. Nope. <laughs> Interdisciplinary okay. among different sectors of the university and that even outside of the library and food studies program, quote, other faculty are willing to commit time and technical expertise to this potential project, end quote within quote that meant that even if lynn's books of which she had many many were housed in the history of food and drink library they would be accessible to everyone end quote and so 
just to kind of wrap it up by by celebrating someone who who should be celebrated. Here's yeah. to Lynn Olver, whose passion for history and research and food is now preserved, and all of her work will continue to be a wonderful resource, a bountiful pantry full of knowledge. With that, that's going to do it for this live episode. And thank you so much to everyone who joined us. We love seeing all of your your beautiful faces and the the squares with your names on them. And we will be back in your ears with new content next week, unless you're here at the live show, in which case it'll be old content again next week because it's this. Um, But you can find that on your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Audible, and Apple Podcasts. I can't believe I'm still using Apple Podcasts gotten bad you can also find us on <laughs> finally no it was i i know i don't like change you can also find us on social media on facebook neither does apple Podcasts. Most clearly on facebook we're the dirt podcast on twitter we're at dirt podcast and on instagram we're at the dirt pod and you can get all of that plus merch plus links to our patreon and sponsored episodes and reading lists you can find all of that over on our website thedirtpod.com. thank you so much thanks for everybody listening. we love you Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.